0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party... That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month Beer52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com/party and get your first case of 8 beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com/party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is a treat of an episode to start your weekend with. Uh, Chris Bryan, who I wanted to interview about his new book, The Glamour Boys, which is the secret story of the rebels who fought for Britain to defeat Hitler. A fantastic piece of research that he's done and a brilliantly written book about the queer and partly queer MPs, who were the first to realise the threat that the Nazis posed and, and the instrumental role they played in changing Britain's stance on the Nazi party. So we talk about that, and that in itself is a great story, and the research that he's done is, it makes for a great listen anyway. But the stuff that has happened to Chris in his life is incredible. He has found himself in some, frankly, astonishing situations, and he talks about them here openly and candidly i mean I, I there's no exaggeration to say you're not going to be able to believe some of the stuff you're about to hear because it is incredible um but he just talks about it so well so honestly and so frankly that this is just <laughs> astonishing so i'm going to shut up and and, and 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 hand over to uh chris bryant because this is this is incredible um i began uh by asking chris about his new book the glamour boys Your new book, The Glamour Boys, um, tells the secret story of the rebels who fought for Britain to defeat Hitler. And um, there are uh, a few of them, uh, gay or or sort of gay um, <laughs> members of Parliament. Queer we, or nearly queer. Queer or nearly queer. queer that's ne- it. Well, I, uh, that's queer, the phrase I use. Well, it's a phrase you use. I, maybe it's a generational thing. For me, the word queer feels... Um, Because I remember it being used as an insult, I'm never sure whether it's okay to use it or not.
2: So it was obviously an insult at the time that I'm writing about in the 1930s because it was, I mean, there were so many different offences you could be done for. Um, Gross indecency was the main one, which was a very unspecific crime. I mean, you you could even be done for um, intending to commit uh, gross indecency. So by sending a letter to somebody, uh, signing it to another man, signing it, "loved." Chris or whatever, or love Matt, um, and, um, and lots of other offences as well. And you can be done for next to no, with, with next to no evidence as well. So in, the U- in, in, in England and Wales, the UK, it was very, very frowned upon, and queer would have, be, would have been a term of abuse then. But I kind of wanted to reclaim it today because the word gay doesn't work. They would never have known that. And homosexual was kind of around, but just as a medical term rather than anything else. So that's why I've gone for queer or nearly queer, because some of them married, some of them didn't. Um, Who knows whether how much sex they have. I always presume that people have more sex than we know about.
1: You do say that quite early on in the book, that you presume people were getting more than um, than perhaps they said, which is a a kind of a a generous assumption to make, perhaps, of of some people. Um, Well, I've tried to look. I mean, because the
2: key thing about a lot of these men is that they used to go to Germany quite a lot at the beginning of the 1930s, because... Even though, strictly speaking, it was illegal in Germany, under paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code, actually, in the Weimar Republic, where the um, Social Democrats ran the government in Prussia, covering most of Germany, including Berlin, anything went. You could do anything, pretty much. And so there were loads of gay bars. It was the time of, you know, um, Sally Bowles and Cabaret, as it were, Um, and they enjoyed themselves. But back in England, they had to be much more circumspect, though, I do point out in the book that there were some kind of underground things you could get up to, not least the um, Turkish baths in German Street.
1: (laughs) The Savoy. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that in more detail. But I guess from the outset, and you accept this at the start of the book, you're kind of having to fill in the blanks. And um, one of the things I guess that's quite interesting about even just the discussion we had about the use of the word queer is the language people would have used back then, the way they may well have expressed it, It's kind of written in a code, and you're going back nearly 100 years later and trying to decipher from actually sometimes quite scant historical record what exactly happened. Uh, You're not just a biographer. In a way, you're a detective.
2: Yes, and sometimes I've gone back to documents that have been used by other historians, but they kind of left this bit out. So, for instance, um, Harold Nicholson's diaries are... Have been or bits of them have been published. They sit in Balliol College Library. There's vast acres of them, and when you go back to the original, you realise that lots of historians have just omitted some of the most interesting things. So his friendship, for instance, with Jack McNamara, who was um, fair-haired, uh, heavily muscled. We know this because Montgomery commented on it when he went to see his troops in uh, 1940. Um, uh, his relationship with Jack McNamara. We know that they went on various trips together and um, uh, almost certainly slept together. Uh, but but likewise, there's this story of Victor Casalette. So a biography was written of Victor Casalette in the 70s, I think. And it used one, one of the three letters that sit in Eton College Library from a guy called Gottfried von Kram. And the only bit that the biographer then used was the fact that Gottfried was German and he was going to sign up Um, in the German army, not because he supported the Nazis, but because all his brothers were in the army, so he felt he had to as well. But actually, the story is much more interesting, because Gottfried von Kram lost the Wimbledon tennis finals twice, including once to Fred Perry. That's how he got to know Victor Casalek, because they both played tennis at Wimbledon. Um, And um, Gottfried Gottfried von Kram, though married, was arrested for having a um, sexual relationship with a Jewish man um, and was sent to a concentration camp in Germany in 1937 um, and, and Victor helped get his lover Manasseh Herbst out of Germany in, to Palestine. So suddenly this is a ten times more interesting story when you tell the whole thing and that's you... all in the letters that were th- that were there to find in, in Eton College um, archives.
1: You make the point that some of these men might not have considered themselves gay in, in, or they, might, they certainly wouldn't have used that word. How difficult is it to tell a story of someone who, uh, you know, were they around today, you might not necessarily get on with or see eye to eye, even on issues about perhaps gay rights?
2: Uh, look, I, I'm a Labour MP and, and nearly all the people we're talking about here are Conservatives and pretty heavily imperialistic um, you know, they were by, by no means always right. And Victor Kazler, in fact, visited Dachau and thought it was all rather jolly. Um, it was only later that he um, felt that he had to, f- that Britain had to fight Hitler um, when he saw the Anschluss in Austria. And he was approached by um, lots of uh, rich people who were Jewish, in uh, who were begging him to take, then back to the UK, even if it ended, it meant that they had to work as a gardener. And, and, and so it was his passion for the Jewish cause that, and that changed his mind. For Jack McNamara, it was visiting Dachau with Guy Burgess, who was his researcher, later Soviet spy, an Anglican archdeacon and a civil servant from um, the war office, uh, both of whom uh, were gay. And they, they went on some kind of sex trip as well as visiting Daco, And I think it was then that that changed Jack McNamara's view.
1: The point of the book is that these queer, partially queer, (laughs) I always kind of get nervous about using phrases, but these are... It's fine. These queer or partially queer guys were instrumental, actually, in, in... in making the case for for stopping Hitler. And at the time, people are familiar with the, the difference between Chamberlain and Churchill, but then perhaps not familiar with the detail of this story, that it was seeing that homophobia and, and seeing the change from 1930s Berlin and the way the Nazis then started treating gay people, with the Night of the Long Knives, and, and then the things that followed was that actually being queer was crucial for them, realizing how dangerous Hitler was.
2: Yes, because they had personal relationships with people who were being arrested, um, who were in the room when the Night of the Long Knives, um, you know, Hitler dispatched um, lots of uh, the gay Nazis. I know it's odd to think of gay Nazis, but quite a lot of the leading Nazis at at the beginning in 1930, 1931, 1932 were gay, including Ernst Röhm, who ran the Stormtroopers and Edmund Hines. Um, and so, and each of these men, as I say, had their own journey. Rob Bernays, very early in 1932, spotted the danger of Hitler, um, and was constantly being accused of being a warmonger for it. Um, was uh, very opposed to Oswald Mosley and and the black shirts and the fascists in the UK. Um, uh, Harold Nicholson had friends, um, likewise, who you know who shook when he saw them whenever they mentioned G- going back to Germany. Um, and this group, because they met together so frequently, I mean, they loved going to Boulistan because it was run by a gay guy and his, and his lover. And um, they, they loved going to dinner. They, lo- they loved to, um, uh, spending time together. They became the nucleus, which associated itself with Anthony Eden in particular when he was had to resign as foreign secretary in, in 1938, and then with Churchill as well. Um, and half the t- And they met every week um, in one or other of their houses, Ronnie Tree, who was bisexual, or Jim's, uh, uh, Jim Thomas, who was probably gay. Um, and, um, and sometimes I, I think that Eden and uh, Churchill must have been the only completely heterosexual people in the room. Um, and, the, and then the, the, the extraordinary thing is because Neville Chamberlain hated them so much, he wanted to denigrate them. He wanted to insinuate it, something about them. And that's why he called them the glamour boys. Um, He had employed this guy, Sir Joseph Ball, to run a kind of nasty black ops um, against him, against them. Um, Their phones were tapped. Uh, They had nasty articles appearing in the newspapers about why you're still um, a bachelor and things like that. They were threatened with deselection. Um, And then they, uh, the young ones anyway, enlisted in the army and four of them were killed in action.
1: And the Glamour Boys, the the ones you cover in this book are are, are the queer or or partially queer. But Churchill would have been included in that group of people called the Glamour Boys.
2: Yes, because it was a way of insinuating something without actually saying it. Because the word glamour then meant something slightly different from today. Um, Today it's entirely positive. But then it meant um, flighty, uh, bewitching, alluring and ultimately effeminate. Um, and, and, and that's why it was, a, it was a bit of an attack word to, to use. Um, and uh, but, but interestingly enough, I think, well, Churchill must have known that Jack McNamara was gay. I mean, I don't think there can have been any doubting it. And yet when Jack was killed in action in 1944, um, Churchill wrote to Jack's mother, Natalie Orpen, um, that he was all that a man should be. He was very touched by Ronnie Cartland's death as well, um, and wrote a very um, uh, warm uh, eulogy about him. But, but and Roy, just to stick with Ronnie Carlin for a moment, who knew that Barbara Carlin had a younger brother, <laughs> um, and that Barbara Carlin was this rather wild, um, entertaining figure, you know, who ran these um, elaborate, extravagant parties and um, wrote lots of gossip columns and so on. Um, and, and, and 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 I was very, very close to. Uh, Ronnie, but when he died, she included lots of eulogies that had been written about him, but left one sentence out which used the word flamboyant, because that was a code word, wasn't it, for gay? Have
1: you encountered with any of the uh, families of, of any of the, the men that you talk about in this book any, any issues? Has anyone's grandson or great granddaughter said, I'm not comfortable you talking about my, my granddad or great granddad like this?
2: Well, <laughs> I spoke to the Earl of Port Arlington as you do who is the son of uh, Viscount Carlo who was one of Ronnie Cartland's uh, who, uh, and Ronnie Cartland was his best man and I, I said do you mind if I ask an indelicate question and he said you're going to ask me whether my father was homosexual aren't you so yes he said well <laughs> I haven't the faintest idea because I was only six when he died but I can tell you this his best man his best friend the the person he always referred to as his number one friend, Ronnie Cartland, he certainly was. Um, so I think there's a, there's a changed atmosphere today, isn't there? But but Jack McNamara's brother, who was a, a big figure in the RAF himself um, in the Second World War, he refused to inherit from his brother because his brother was gay. Um, but his um, children or grandchildren have been happy to talk to me and are rather proud of their great uncle. Um, and likewise, Herbert Sharp. The Anglican archdeacon married, who was Jack McNamara's uh, partner, lover, sponsor, patron, um, whatever. Um, his great grandchildren have—they uh, showed me the family photo album with pictures of them both in their swimming trunks, by um, you know, with some strapping lads in Germany.
1: It's a fantastic story, uh, and obviously, uh, it deals with war, and, and as you say, some of these then pass away as a result of of, of serving uh, and die in service serving their country. Um, What made you want to tell it now? Well,
2: I mean, it's partly just the fluke that I came across this sentence about Jack McNamara when I was writing a history of parliament and which said that he'd gone on sex trips with Guy Burgess and an Anglican archdeacon in Berlin and um, France, including, Episodes when they were playing table tennis um, uh, with a young cyclist na- naked over the table, acting as the table tennis net. Um, and just somehow that was kind of interesting.
1: Wow. Very <laughs> um, difficult way to play table tennis.
2: I've never tried it myself. <laughs>
1: um,
2: I'm not very good at table tennis. Um, but the, but, but I mean, the, the key thing for me was, and um, he at the time, all the previous historians have said that he was, Nazi supporting, and they said that he was a member of the Anglo-German Fellowship, and I've done all the research, there's no... And the Anglo-German Fellowship was undoubtedly a Nazi supporting organisation, there is no evidence that Jack was a member. There is that um, Kim Philby and Guy Burgess were, but not of Jack McNamara. So I think people have often misunderstood him, and it's been a delight to be able to sort of bring him back into the light. Um, The other thing is, for me, it's awfully easy I'm slightly homosexual, as you know, um, if not completely. And I, um, it's awfully easy for younger generations of people to think, well, we've won this freedom and it will never be taken away from us again. But you, you have to remember that 1930s Berlin was the best place in the world to be if you wanted to have um, a sex life as a gay man. And six years later, people were being bumped off, sent to concentration camps, and we don't even know how many gay men were... Um, killed by the Nazis. So um, I, I just, I don't want us to be complacent. And then the final thing that I think is really important for today is, these were rebels. They were threatened with deselection. Ring any bells in recent <laughs> politics? I mean, both major political parties, yeah, you know, trying to purge people that didn't quite fit with the leadership. And I just think that our, one of the good things about our political system when it works well is that rebels um can be valued like like precious diamonds
1: and as a group were they close as a group were were they all friends or were there you know with any extended group sometimes you get a core group there are people that kind of come in and out on the periphery how did they interact with each other
2: they used to have meetings in in one or other of their houses near westminster every week they used to go to dinner um at one or other of their clubs together the travelers or the beefsteak or um, sometimes the Carlton, though, once Jack McNamara had made a speech about um, Jew baiting, attacking Jew baiting in England. Um, it's an odd phrase, but that's the, a phrase he used at the time. Uh, he went to the Carlton that evening and was spat at and never went back to the Carlton again. He was called um, a, a Jew lover boy, which was obviously a double attack on sexuality and um, Judaism and um, anyway, um, but so they used to meet together and dine together regularly. Um, uh, in particular, um, Jack McNamara, Rob Bernays, Ronnie Cartland, um, Harold Nicholson, um, Ronnie Tree—that uh, group all the time. And but also interestingly, when when um, Anthony Eden resigned, Anthony Eden incidentally always called men dear. Just saying. Um, but when he, when he resigned, everybody he turned to um, in the next 48, 72 hours for, for advice on what speech to make, how to get support in the chamber, all of this, they were all gay. All of them. It was just really, really striking.
1: And what do you deduce from that?
2: That he was very relaxed about it. Um, that um, it was a community of people that he felt very happy with. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that you could live your whole life entirely with men if you wanted to. If you were in the army, um, most you weren't able to marry in the army unless you got permission from your commanding officer. So lots of you know, um, army barracks were entirely homosocial affairs. Um, the parliament, um, Churchill described as a masculine assembly with some pride um you you know your club um most of your social life you you could you could lead it entirely with men plus then of course the the splendid additional women who invited you to dinner as socialites like um emerald cunard and um nancy astor and so on
1: for you then how i guess you identify with with them in to to, to some extent but do you With the freedoms that we now enjoy in 2020, although, of course, I say that as a straight man, and I I, I realise that I don't suffer the homophobia that you will have suffered. Um, When you're researching people that have gone before you, trailblazers in so many ways, and you read about the things that were said at the time and, and the way people were talked about at the time. Does that still wound you in the present when when you're researching, effectively, in a way, the history of prejudice? Um,
2: well, I'm conscious that everybody has a path th- through life. And with all of these characters, I've tried not to paint them as better than they are. Um, you know, they, they are warts and all. And, and, and Rob Bernays, on a couple of occasions, lied. Um to protect himself and because he didn't want to lose his job in government um and if you look at Harry Cruikshank's diaries up against Ro- um uh, Rob Bernays's diaries that you know that that is just the case but and I've spoken to Rob Bernays's two, both his sons and they let me see all his papers and stuff which is a delight um so I, I I've always believed that people aren't one thing or another they're streaky um, like bacon. Uh, or Yes, exactly. Or feet of clay, however, however you want to put it. But um, and streaky bacon is better than the other kinds of bacon because it's got more taste. Um, so I um, just some and I, and I hope there's a sense of suspense in the book because you don't know which way each of them is going to go. It takes Victor Casella a long time to come on board, um, and. Uh, and sometimes they're getting into trouble as well. And I've tried to give that sense of fun as well. Um, Victor Casalet ran in the war. He set up an anti-aircraft um, battery in Sevenoaks, which he ran and, and Victor was a director of the Dorchester. So he used to interview any prospective members of the battery at the Dorchester for dinner. Um, and, um, and his regiment was known as either the monstrous, re- or his battery rather, was known as the Monstrous Regiment of Gentlemen, because it had so many um, gay men and artists and writers and so on in it, or as the Buggers Battalion. And uh, I came across one great story of a chap advising his um, daughters about to be um, husband not to join the Buggers Battalion, but asking his wife to leave the room before he told her.
1: (laughs) You're a as well as being an author, obviously, a Member of Parliament, and and before that, a Church of England vicar. Um, How strange is it um, to to be a gay man drawn to what are quite conservative, small-c conservative institutions?
2: Incidentally, just before I answer that, um, one of the nice things about Ronnie Carlin for me and Jack McNamara was that the first thing they rebelled on was financial assistance um, to the depressed areas, including the Rhondda.
1: Also, um, oh, there's a, there's a local element the, as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a minor part of the story, but it was just it, it was nice to me. And I think by the end, Ronnie Cartland was so fed up with the Conservative Party that he he wanted to join the, nat- the the National Labour Party. Whether he'd have joined the Labour Party or not, I don't know. In the end, but he he anyway. Um, yeah, so I mean. There's, there are bits of me that are quite conservative um, and um, I, I, I like tradition but I also want to break it, uh, I want to make it work for today and so on, so um, I like icons but I like breaking them. <laughs>
1: A healthy attitude, uh, particularly for... But it's worth
2: it. But I like the... You're basically pointing out that I am now careering from career to career.
1: (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to quite put it like that. It's the words of Stephen Sondheim. Well, I'm happy to identify myself with um, someone who can express my uh, questions better than I can, but... I guess what I meant was you've you've had two and being an author obviously is is an extra career while you're still a politician. But I think for any politician to have been a politician and been part of a church or or organised religion is quite an interesting thing that perhaps this part of you that's drawn to institutions where you can have influence and, and look after people.
2: I've I've worked I've been worked for the BBC as well. Um, I've been in nearly every. Does that fit
1: that description? The BBC. I I was going
2: to say I've been in nearly every institution apart from a psychiatric ward and a (laughs) prison so far. I. The truth is that what happened when I was young, my mum was alcoholic and it killed her, and um, when I arrived at university. Um, I felt that I had managed to survive relatively well, um, not because I was a particularly great person, but because I must have some kind of inner strength and because I'd had great people surrounding me and caring for me and supporting me, including a wonderful man called Sam Salter, um, whose daughter, Rebecca, is now the president of the Royal Academy and a great friend. And I think that that's when I knew that um, my life Whatever I ended up doing for a job, my life couldn't just be about me. It, this is sounding terribly pious now. I don't mean it that way, but it it had to be about doing something for others as well. And there is an element of being MP for the Rhonda, which is very similar to being a vicar in High Wickham or um, wherever else, because you are, you know, your your primary focus is the community that you try to serve.
1: People often think of the church as being quite a homophobic place. I grew up going to church regularly, and it was a Church of England parish that I was an altar boy in. I never, although, again, I, I'm not gay, so I might not have heard it or encountered it or, or spotted it in the same way when I was young. But it never really struck me that most people who go to church were homophobic, that it, and it actually wasn't something that was ever really discussed that much. Was it something you encountered much as a, as a vicar?
2: Can't remember how old you are. I'm 58. Um, I'm 38. So, so um, I think in you know when I was born, homosexuality was still a criminal offence, and I I knew people, um, Ilted Harrington, for instance, who uh, was a big figure in the London Labour Party, uh, who remembered days when if they were burgled, they they had to. They couldn't report it to the police because the police would arrest them for sleeping in the same bed, rather than arrest anybody for burgling them. And um, and when I arrived on the church scene, a I hadn't quite sorted out what my sexuality was. My girlfriend was quite insistent that I was gay. Um, she sang at my wedding in the end. wow <laughs> um, in the Palace of Westminster many years ago. Well, ten years ago. Um, and um i and and she and the second thing was that the church previously its line had been don't ask don't tell and there were lots of i mean nearly every inner, inner city parish because there were no women priests at the time every inner city parish priest was a gay man i remember one bishop saying to me I'm really sorry, Chris. I decided I had to appoint a straight priest in one of the deaneries because otherwise there wouldn't be a single pra- straight priest in the whole um, 20 parish area. Um, so, but then came Mrs. Thatcher with um, Michael Howard's um, local government bill and Clause uh, 28, Section 28, yeah, uh, Section 28, um, which you know prohibited. Um, uh, teaching of homosexuality in schools, and the church decided that it ought to know about you, and then real- and then thought, well, actually, that that isn't that doesn't really fit with church's teaching. I remember Richard Harris, who was the bishop who ordained me, giving a silly new- newspaper um, uh, interview about six months after he'd ordained me saying he'd never laid hands on a gay man which a was quite funny in itself but b i was just i thought well what do you think i am richard i was the first person you ordained um and oddly i mean now we're great friends um and uh you know he he feel he's, and he and he came to our wedding everybody came to our wedding i was going to
1: say <laughs> this remarkable wedding of yours where all these um... cilla
2: black came
1: right <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. But your amazing girlfriend, who you then keep in touch with and ends up singing at your wedding, sounds like a remarkable person.
2: She's wonderful. Donna, Donna Soto-Morotini. She's American um, and uh, she's a singer. She teaches uh, musical theatre. We were in the Opera together. I played Mac the Knife badly.
1: <laughs> well, they say politics is showbiz for ugly people, but you are... Um... Uh, you're not an ugly person. That wouldn't be fair. But do you do you think that's do you think... boy? Calm down now, <laughs> easy tiger. But do you think that some politicians have that frustrated performer? Do you identify that in yourself?
2: Well, I re- I also wrote a biography of Glenda Jackson, and Glenda always used to say that the difference between Parliament and po- and theatre was that uh, Parliament is under rehearsed and badly lit. Um, but uh, she's right about badly lit. The chamber is really badly lit, um, and in fact, for people with disabilities, it's uh, one of the most common complaints. Um, I've always thought that politics is about three things: it's about what you believe, um, it's about how you um, would want to implement what you believe, so your policies and things like that, um, and it's about um, and it's about how you perform, and. Being able to perform is a key part of it, because all we have is words. And your own personality, I suppose.
1: But is there is there a is there a parallel universe where Chris Bryant goes off to to play Broadway and, and never enters politics?
2: Yeah, I play it out in my head every night. <laughs> The thing is, I, I'm not sure my... Well, I, I mean, I used to sing a lot. I was in the National Youth Theatre, and um, I did act a lot. I mean, I, I've been on holiday with Daniel Craig. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I'm not sure I was a very, very good actor. I was offered a part in, um, uh, uh, what's it called? The film with Rupert Everett and Colin Firth, um, Another Country. And why didn't you but,
1: take it? And-
2: Because I was about to start a theological college and it involved snogging another man in a boat.
1: What's wrong with that?
2: Well, as I say, the Church of England wasn't entirely... All right, (laughs) OK,
1: yes, of course, yeah. God, I'm stupid. (laughs) Um, Your civil partnership, the first civil partnership conducted at Parliament.
2: Yes, this was um, a strange uh, moment in a way because... So, so the law at the time said that um, MPs and the children of MPs can get married in the Crypt chapel, um, but that's not available to homosexuals because that's Church of England rules and the Church of England doesn't marry gay couples. So that left us with the problem How, it, because we kind of we wanted to do it in Parliament and, and also, but it, because we weren't allowed to, we definitely wanted to. Yeah, um, and. Um, so there were two options uh, and Gordon got in touch, Gordon Brown, the night before a liaison committee because he wanted to announce something the next day. And he decided that what he wanted to announce was that he was going to make it possible for me and Jared to get married in parliament by basically having, either changing the law um, or licensing parliament. And in fact, that's what we went for in the end with Burko was very helpful in that. And, and it meant that we anybody can now get married in parliament um, since we started it, because it's licensed and they do 20 or 30 a year.
1: So did you lobby Gordon Brown for that then, or did this just come out of nowhere?
2: Well, oddly enough, um, Sarah Brown and Cilla Black <laughs> had come to a dinner. I was a Foreign Office Minister at the time, had come to a dinner at the Foreign Office for the Terence Higgins Trust, their supper club thing. And, we d- and Jared and I discussed it with Sarah then. And I think she must have said something to Gordon, and he was searching for some something to announce. There was a very weird thing about it though. Chris Mullen was, I was quite friendly with Chris Mullen. Um, and um he was he seemed very in favor, and you'd think he would be liberal on these kind of things. But in his diaries, um, he 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 refers to being rung by Burko asking him what did he think about being allowed to have civil partnerships in Parliament because Chris Bryant wanted to do one and he said that he he, he, he says in his diary that he told Burko it's a step too far at this stage.
1: <gasps> wow. I know. Have you spoken to him about it? Yes. And what does he say? He, quite,
2: he says I have no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> I have no idea what I was thinking.
1: Oh my god, but he, he's then obviously printed these diaries and let it be in there. He's not taking that bit out.
2: I know. Weird, isn't it? So I this... keep a diary, and I'm now terrified of what's in my diary that I'm going to incriminate myself.
1: But that's what makes those Ben, Clark, Mullen, you know, the uh, Campbell, that's what makes a good political yeah. diary. Edwina Curry is the, is the is the is the not the editing, is is leaving it all in and it being in chronological order. That's what makes them different to retrospective biography is where you can polish this stuff out that's what makes them such important oh wow look at that so that's some, and
2: so that's 2002 to 3
1: and you write so these are all written out in longhand special yeah. pen or just any old biro
2: any old pen just so that i can um i can't correct it
1: and are you, are you you've been keeping them what since you got elected
2: I think that's the first one. That's two thousand. I, I started the twenty. So I, I was elected two thousand and one, but I started on the twenty fourth of April, uh, two thousand and two. Yeah, volume one.
1: And how often do you keep it? I feel a bit depressed tonight. <laughs> Does that narrow it down, or could could that be the start <laughs> of any? <laughs> that could be the start of any
2: end. Um, it, I write probably five times a week. Okay, so it's not every day. And I, and I do it in the morning about the day before rather than at the end of the day.
1: And is that, why is that?
2: I don't know. It's just because it's when I feel like writing. And, some, and sometimes I'll do it on the train or I'll do it in the library or whatever. So it's not, it's, it's when I feel like it rather okay. than, I didn't want to be a slave to it. I wanted to do it because I wanted to do it.
1: I wondered if you didn't want to do it on the night of the day so that you just had at least a bit of thinking time, rather than just... Maybe they'd be angrier if well, they were written at night.
2: Well, they might be more drunken.
1: <laughs> well, um, that's a good point, actually. You need to be able to read what you've written. Maybe it was because of that.
2: My handwriting... Well, I I can read my handwriting, but I'm not sure many others can. Um, but it was... It, it, when the um, whole Leveson thing happened... It was quite useful because I could I could go back and find things by date and and work out what order things happened in and
1: so on. And let's talk about Leveson. But just before that, um, is it, did you keep these with the intention of one day publishing them? Or what was the intention of starting a diary? So I think round about volume four,
2: I decided that I would probably end up publishing. Oh. Um, I'm... And and interestingly, as a historian now, it's been so invaluable going back to the original of Harold Nicholson's diaries in Balliol College, Oxford. And for that matter, the the handwritten diary that Rob Bernays kept from 1930 in Australia, which fills in a whole story which nobody has ever been able to look at before. I'm conscious that, well, what are the the paper documents from this era? I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't think there are many diarists at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I probably will publish, but it'll have to be heavily cut because there must be about five bazillion words in there already.
1: But what an amazing period. And
2: from... I feel depressed tonight. <laughs> 2015, 2017, 2019.
1: And why did, why did you feel depressed that night if it's not too bleak to to dip back into that to that very first entry? That would have been um, a year in, so maybe. I
2: think it's the day. I think from memory, it's the day <laughs> that I know. No, I I know exactly what happened. I got abs- I'd gone for dinner with a friend, yeah, um, who was in a very weird state at the time, and he he was drunk before he arrived, and we then had quite a bit, and this was the first. <laughs> it's the first time I spoke to Tony Blair after <laughs> getting elected, and I, he was in the lobby voting with me, and I. I was not very sober I don't think oh, and I must have breathed all over him so <laughs> that's why
1: and did he did he notice you say oh Chris you look like you've had a few looks like it's no he
2: I I'm not I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of Tony stories there's lots of Tony stories
1: well it's a right also era. but also
2: I I I um, during the whole Brexit saga last year, um, I chaired all the meetings of the kind of rebels, the Dominic Grieve, you know, the rebels on both sides. Um, and um, so I and, and obviously I've kept a record of all of that.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: you mentioned Leveson. I mean, you had an incredible experience with it. You were instrumental in having the inquiry set up in the first place. But what's it like to have your phone hacked? Uh, you know, I read accounts of Paul Gascoigne and the fact that he thought his family was spying on him and it ruined personal relationships. Did you go through a similar thing?
2: Yes, a bit. Um, I mean, I was obviously only in, of interest to them for a very short period unlike. like, much more famous people um but the the weirdest thing I mean and when it all happened that there was way back in 2003 there was all sorts of um attempts to blackmail me and all sorts of things going on and and I'd had to call the police and um it was all very unpleasant but then I'd kind of got over that by the and then it was in 2009 that I spotted that you know, the police were admitting that there were lots of papers that they had never done anything about um, from Glen Mulcair. And so I wrote to them and said, can you just see if there's anything that relates to me? And they replied to say, we can't tell you. Um, And then I was up. So then I got a lawyer to write to them. And they said, well, actually, there is some paper. And I said, well, what what do you mean some paper? Is it like a book? Is it a, a Post-it note, you know, what is it? And they wouldn't tell me because they said it would infringe the the privacy of other people on the piece of paper. Anyway, eventually we had to sue the Metropolitan Police to get it, um, which cost £400,000 legal fees, which in the end the Met had to pay, um, uh, which is just ludicrous of the Met, a complete waste of their money. Um, And that's why everybody else got to see all the information, because we sued. But the, the two pages um, relating to me just had a series. So there's my num- name and number at the top and my address and some names of other people in my family and things like that. And their telephone numbers. I don't know how they got hold of them. Um, and then a series of kind of notes about that. Um, I, I had a car on higher purchase and so um, the number relating to that um they'd obviously rung i don't know i mean i don't know how they and a whole series of telephone numbers of other people who who had rung and left messages for me
1: and the blackmail how does that happen does that sort of come out of the blue and someone just posts a letter through your front door exactly so and it was which
2: which oddly from who when it when it came i i get i rang the commissioner of the metropolitan police who sent uh, the head of crime, um, and who came to the office and I gave it to him and he said, oh, well, this is up very clearly, obviously a crime. Blah, blah, blah. I never heard another word from him. And and I, I only know, because in my diary, I looked up later who it was, and it was Inspector Yates of the Yard, the man who was, you know, right in the thick of it with being employed by News International and all the rest of it.
1: I mean, I've never been blackmailed. I never am, but I imagine it to come with those cut-out letters from a newspaper, and I don't know what it wasn't. It it wasn't that,
2: but anyway,
1: yeah. And that must be a a horrible thing to receive.
2: Well, that whole period, I didn't. I don't think I slept for four months, and I remember when the woman from the mail on Sunday turned up on my doorstep. She was wearing in the Rhonda. She was wearing a very, very smart coat. And I thought, you're not from round here. Um, and sure enough, she wasn't. But bizarrely, I I then had to go on the train from the Rhonda to Southampton, which is a bugger of a journey. Yeah. Um, and there was no seat for the whole of the journey. And obviously, I couldn't ring anybody to talk to anybody, lawyers <sighs> or anything like that. It was uh And I, I think I, and then I had to speak to the (laughs) Southampton Fabians, and then get on the train back.
1: I mean, the hell that they put people through. You're able to smile about it now, and 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 hopefully you've dealt with it all. But really, it's a form of psychological torture what you were subjected to.
2: Uh, Yeah, it was. It's the only time in my life I've ever contemplated suicide, Um, and uh, it was terrible. uh, most MPs were fine. Only one was not. Mm. Who is now a very senior figure in Parliament. What, wasn't fine
1: with you? It
2: was terrible to me.
1: What, as a result of the phone hacking? Mm-hmm. Because they were on Murdoch's
2: Because side. they... they uh, uh, well, yes, uh, basically... Yeah, I mean, you got to remember that all. I think all of this happened because earlier on in the year in two thousand three, I had um, asked Rebecca Brooks, "Have you ever paid a police officer for information?" And she said yes, um, sitting next to Andy Coulson, who then went on to become David Cameron's. And funnily enough, <laughs> years later, going back to the Chris Mullin story. Yeah. So Chris Mullin and uh, and and I were both close friends with a guy called. Tom Fletcher who used to work at Downing Street as um, foreign office kind of political advisor in Downing Street to to Tony then Gordon and then David Cameron Um, and he's he's now um, master at Hartford College Oxford and Chris Mullen and I both turned up at the same time for the farewell party at Downing Street under David Cameron and when you arrive in Downing Street you have to leave your mobile phone in a kind of box thing in the hall so which I've done and as we were coming up the stairs, I could see Andy Coulson standing there. And he his face was saying, what the hell are you doing in here? And I just said, it's all right, Andy, if you want my mobile phone, it's down by the front door.
1: Oh my, how did he take that?
2: He laughs, you know.
1: But what, oh my word, the, just the interpersonal drama of that, that you can face, I mean, I thought... It, people will reflect their own about what it said about Cameron's judgment employing him in the first place. But having to come face to face with him in the heart of government to deal with people that have, their actions and their decisions led to awful, the fact that you were contemplating suicide and then a couple of months or a few years later, there you are face to face with him. It's almost, it's almost,
2: you you can't imagine how
1: that feels for you.
2: They but they would, you know, I mean their argument is um that uh you know they're just doing their job kind of thing and it's not for them to worry about what people feel at the other end of the scale.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure they would anyway say- it
2: feels like a very long time ago. And the weird thing is that because all of that happened back then, um there was nothing Murdoch could do to me. You know, there was there's uh, so it's, you know, what I, I, and it's set to some degree, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger.
1: I just can't get over that senior parliamentarian. I can understand people uh, approving or disapproving of any question at a select committee, however it might appear to to the rest of us that it is a legitimate question. But it sounds like they went further than that and went out of their way to to be quite unpleasant.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And what but, you've, but you've got to bear in mind that how frightened people were of the Murdoch Empire. Um, you know, I mean, there, there were people who were given nice columns in newspapers to keep them quiet. And then there were people who were um, just terrified of what, what would be written about them. Um, and I mean, I even remember Tom, Tom Baldwin, um, who incidentally is married to a Nicholson um, of Harold Nicholson's fame. Everything goes around in circles, doesn't it? Um, but Tom telling me that I was not to speak in the debate on phone hacking um, because it would imperil Tom um, Ed Miliband's chances of um, you know winning a general election. And I said, make- "Well, it's a bit late in the mate, because it's the the motion's down in my name."
1: For, for list, I'm sure listeners know Tom Baldwin is, but at the time he was. Head of comms for Fred Miliband and went on to yeah. work for people's various things. Um, and what, what, Dom and I laugh them? about it now. Okay. Well, that's good. It's nice for the people can all make friends in the end. It's reassuring, I think, for, for readers. And well,
2: and to be fair to Ed Miliband, I think it was kind of a moment that, that um, helped define him.
1: Well, it's that and energy prices are the kind of two things. Well, and yeah. changing the leadership rules of the Labour Party, but the things that he would say in his plus column would yeah. be, would be. Standing up to Murdoch and, and perhaps the energy firms yeah. as well. Um, I mean, obviously you can't tell us who this senior parliamentarian, unless you would like to tell us who this and I'm not going to. beastly individual was. But what do you think explains, what, what explains their motivation in being so unpleasant to you then? Was it the column or was it the... Film? Oh, he's homophobic. Right.
2: Straight, straight homophobia. Told me I should be ashamed of myself and shouldn't be an MP because I was gay.
1: And this obviously wasn't that long ago. This is just incredible.
2: Well, this that that happened quite a long time ago, it was fifteen years ago. But but um, but that person is still a senior figure in Parliament today.
1: On the government side, I'm not going any further. <laughs> I guess this will all be in the diaries. I mean, would you would you leave stuff like that in the diaries, or would you take stuff like that out?
2: Well, my husband says he's going to edit it. So that um it's tidied up. <laughs> but I don't know whether that might just make it rather dull. Just gonna end the series of I feel a bit depressed tonight. <laughs> and then just
1: redacted. <laughs> you could I suppose what you could do is bring out the sanitized version and then have a kind of director's cut where it's all the
2: I think that would that might be troubling the British public too much.
1: Well I'd buy both editions if nothing else. So <laughs> Two sales guaranteed there. Um, before you became an MP, then, you did stand in 1997 that uh, you stood in Wickham and, and were unsuccessful, which is, is possibly a foregone conclusion. But in 1997, it felt like Labour could win anywhere. So at, at any point during that campaign, did you think, actually, I might end up being the MP for Wickham here? Yeah?
2: Well, funnily enough, you may recall in the 1997... Um, general. Well, you're not really old enough, are you? But in the 1997 general election... Um, the Guardian rang me about 10 days before the election itself to say they were going to do polling in, I think it was 90 constituencies in the UK, where they thought Labour might take the seat off the Tories. And they were choosing between Stephen Twigg and me. Oh, boy. And they, and they did Stephen Twigg. I said that we won't win here. You know, do Stephen Twigg. And, that, and I think that's one of the things that contributed to consolidating all the Liberal votes behind Labour and defeating Michael
1: Portillo. Um, it was Bryant what won it for Stephen Swig.
2: But ironically then, of course, Steve... I, I, but if I'd won then, I, it would have been difficult to, for me still to be an MP for Wickham, yes. I think, now. Um, and Stephen's been in and out and in again <laughs> and out. Yes. Um, and I'm still here, again, going back to Stephen sometime.
1: <laughs> so in the end I, and, and
2: instantly it was Wickham because it was where i'd been the curate in the parish church and um, we'd gone we went from third to second and um and then there was a recount and everybody thought it was because i had just lost or was one or whatever and it wasn't it was because the greens had lost their deposit
1: i interviewed guys the steward a few weeks ago and her account of how she got selected for that seat for Birmingham Edgbaston is fascinating. How do you, how did you win the Ronder selection? Because you're not from there, you're coming from outside. In 2001, any safe seat would have been hotly contested. How did you win them over?
2: Um, so I was born in Cardiff and brought up to the age of seven living in, in Penarth. And uh, Alan Michael was intending to stand down because he was going to be in the assembly. Um, and so I'd been sort of pursuing the parliamentary seat of Cardiff South and Panarth, um, and was doing all right. And then suddenly the Welsh, um, the, the Assembly Labour group got rid of Alan Michael as its leader and he decided that he was going to stick with Westminster. Thank you very much. So I then rang the um, General Secretary of the Welsh Labour Party, Jessica Morden, uh, now MP in Newport and said, well, that's it, Tara. I'm off, you know, I've tried my best. And she said, no, put your name in for the Rhonda. I said, I can't, I I, I can't. I, I mean, I don't know anybody in the Rhonda. Um, and she said, yes, you do, you know Anita. I said, all right, yeah, I know Anita, but she won't vote for me because I'm not a woman. So, you know, man, I don't see how that helps at all. She said, put your name in, but it started three weeks ago. Put your name in. I put my name in, 52 people applied. We got to the shortlisting meeting, and somebody had been ringing around saying, you know, he's gay. <gasps> and um, well, it was the best thing ever for me, to be honest, because when you're, when you're knocking on people's doors and saying, hello, my name's Chris Bryant, you don't immediately want to start talking about your sexual preferences, um, but you sort of don't want to have deceived anybody. Mm. So it meant that at the shortlisting meeting, I could go look, um, I know some of you had telephone calls about uh, me, um i think you know why you've had them it's perfectly true i am a gay man but i don't want to be the gay candidate. i want to be the labor candidate i was taught um that you judge somebody according to uh, not according to the color of their skin their what la- accent they speak with what school they went with and whether they're male or female or anything like that you simply judge them according to the strength of their character and whether they do what they say they will and i hope that you will judge me on that same basis here tonight and I thought, well, I've done my "I am what I am" moment, and yeah. they all appla- And they all applauded, and it had standing ovation, all of that lot. And I thought, but they'll still keep me off the shortlist because they say that's just too difficult. But in the end, I won the nomination.
1: And the pe- the person making the calls was that from a particular opponent. Yeah. And did you know who it was? Yes. And are they a politician now? He is. <gasps> A member of parliament, not a, se-
2: not a senior politician. No, 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 no. I mean, and we're fine, we're, we're fine with each other now, but um, You're a anyway. remarkably
1: forgiving man.
2: Well, I, I can't see the point in holding up, you know, using energy to hold on to bad stuff, really. Um, interestingly enough, Chris Evans, also Labour MP um, in South Wales, he was in the room when I was selected, and I think so far as I know, he's the only person who has ever admitted to having voted for me to be the
1: candidate. (laughs) I'm sure there are others. There must be others in that local group who remember it. No, no. They all said,
2: oh, no, I voted for somebody else. (laughs) It was very controversial at the time. The the independence headline was, how pink was my valley? And the Telegraph predicted that I would lose because I was gay. It is incredible. And I won 10,000.
1: I mean, even now, we still have a long way to go. But particularly in Labour circles, I think, sometimes people can feel that, oh, we've always been very open and woke and politically correct for a long time. The Labour Party may be left-wing in some ways, and as we've discovered over the last few years, actually can be very regressive in others. And in things like homophobia, lots of people join the Labour Party because they believe in protections for workers. They don't necessarily believe in anything more progressive beyond that. Um, It's remarkable that even in the noughties you were experiencing homophobia within the labour movement.
2: Oh, I was told by a a Tory MP in the chamber who's now in the House of Lords, um, Andrew Robithon, with whom I'm also friendly, he said he would not give way to me because I was a notorious homosexual who would never have children of my own. And This was a debate on smacking.
1: Um, What year was that? This must have been after 2001 then.
2: Yeah, this is two thousand and I don't know seven, eight, something like that. I
1: mean, it's basically last week.
2: It's not, but but you know, it, yeah, it's around. But but honestly, I think there was a prejudice about working class communities as well amongst the media who thought that somehow or other the Ronda would be, you know, very unforgiving. I go, I'm president of several rugby clubs in my patch. I go and speak at the dinner. And, you know, all the members of the Gallon Club, once they've drunk their gallon, start taking the mickey. Um, and it's absolutely fine. And I give as good as I get.
1: I don't doubt that, but that's amongst friends, isn't it? That's different. Yes, but my point is
2: that I think... Um, I think it's a... People in the Rondo, they, We Everybody lives on top of each other all the time. I, and, and they've got bigger things to worry about, has been my experience. And... Uh, interesting story from the book actually um, relates to the Ronda because in 1925 a young lad called Thomas who was a railway porter in uh, Tonopandi uh, was arrested in London outside I think the Drury Lane theatre and um, was uh, I think he was given six months in prison Um, the only evidence um, of his gross indecency um, was that he was carrying a woman's powder puff in his pocket, and um, and what really charmed me was two things about this story. Obviously, it's terrible that he went to prison for nothing, um, but two things, nice things. First of all, that he asked the local MP in the Ronda, Labour MP, foot to stand character witness for him, and he did, even though he was a deacon in the Baptist Church, um, which I think is lovely. And secondly, about six months after he's come out of prison, um, the his mother tells um, a, a journalist, "Oh, yes, he's been given his job back at work, and everybody's very happy with him, and nobody seems to mind at all." So, you know, the Ronda isn't as people have often portrayed it.
1: That's very true. Um, just to come back to Leveson, I wanted to ask you about something else. I've just remembered. It led to, and in the age of YouTube, you can watch these things forever. A fantastic moment between you and Kay Burley, <laughs> where <laughs> she talks about, and I'm going purely off memory because I haven't watched it for ages. But it's about how you hack a phone or something like that, and and you and her. Well, she's actually quite rude to you at one point, and then you <laughs> firmly say, "What's it? Don't speak about what you don't know, madam." <laughs> it's just at that point you go right this this interview has changed um is she someone you have forgiven and spoken to uh, well in fact oh, i no, know because i've seen you yeah, yeah we're, we're,
2: we're best mates now um it's more a question of has she forgiven me because the thing was <laughs> it was weird because at the time the sky did the sky studio wasn't working here so you were down the line basically talking into a camera with no idea of who was at the other end. Yes. I had no idea it was Kay Burley or who Kay Burley was. I was just talking to another, per- to a person. And there were two bits to it. There was one bit where she, she said, well, ba- basically all you had to do was change your pin number.
1: That was it. That was it.
2: And I, and I launched at that and said, no, 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 you are absolutely wrong. You simply do. If you had followed any of Yeah, yeah. and
1: then,
2: and then the second bit was, which was much naughtier of me really, um, was that she said, um, she, she said, so, so what, are you, are you going to say that now? I said, I'd said, oh, it, you know, it was endemic. And she said, are you, are, you, are you saying that on television now? I said, well, I've already said it twice. If you don't mind me seeing, saying so, you seem a little dim.
1: <laughs> it was fantastic television.
2: It was very naughty, really, but anyway, I mean, I've also recently had a big well, old rap with Dan Wooden.
1: I was coming, I was coming to that, <laughs> where, where slightly more justified, and not that you were unjustified in in uh, rebutting the way Kay Burley had handled that particular story with Dan Wooden recently. I mean, it, it's sort of new growth of this type of radio presenter, where the videos are clipped and put online. It feels quite an American model they're trying to do over here in the UK, where it's deliberate baiting of people and it doesn't seem to add any value to the debate but he got more than he bargained for when he had a conversation with you
2: Again, I had no idea who he was <laughs> um, I'd never heard of Dan Whitton. Um, I was just doing an interview I thought about the firebreak starting in Wales um, on Talk Radio and I suppose I sort of knew that Talk Radio is also Murdoch <laughs> mm. um, I hadn't realised that Dan Wootten had written articles supporting the Great Barrington, excuse me, the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, and COVID denying and all that kind of stuff in The Sun. Um, and that he's normally a kind of celebrity journalist. Yes, that's than,
1: what I'd sort of first been aware of him as. Was yeah. Well, I'd, I'd never
2: heard of him at all. and I And so he started off quite aggressively and I was sitting in the, smoking room in the House of Commons which as you know you can't smoke in but it's and it's empty and you can't drink in either because there's no drink in Parliament so it's all completely empty it was just me in there on my mobile phone doing this not really focusing very much and he was quite aggressive and I said oh well you've obviously got an idea a view. why don't you just tell us what it is and then it went downhill from there basically and then I sort of went Oh, I've just realised you're a nutcase, um, and I shouldn't have used the word nutcase. Um, but and then he went on and on and on, and I went, "Oh, I've realised you're a dangerous nutcase. It's worse." And and he then started, you know, sort of saying, "Well, I think I'm going to throw you off." And i by that time, I'd already switched him off. <laughs> he then wrote an article, a whole column about how terrible I was, and he's had several programmes devoted to you know slagging me off and. Um, there we
1: are. But that's what they want. They do that on purpose. They they want yeah, to have an argument with someone. Yeah. That's and that's the whole point. It's not even about whether they are seen to win or lose the argument. There's a shamelessness to it. So even though you, know, you watch that conversation between you and him, you are clearly if, if there is to be a victor, it's clearly you. You know, you express yourself and conduct yourself in it in a far more articulate and thoughtful way. You can kind of see what he's up to. He won't mind that. He will love the fact that it gets shared. He won't go, "Oh no, that clip of me's being shared online." He'll probably think, "Oh no, oh. no, of
2: course not, no, no." <clears throat> Indeed, though, of course, I, I mean, I, as I understand it, he had quite a lot of homophobic abuse after. He's gay as well, isn't he? Um, he had a lot of homophobic abuse after that, um, and um, which is which is horrible as well. So I'm not sure. It, you know, I'm not sure that all of that works very well in in this world of social media, really.
1: And it does feel... And I don't consider myself to be any sort of... You know, it sounds like quite a, an establishment thing to say. That whole thing just doesn't... It doesn't kind of work here. It doesn't feel like it fits the British media. It feels like an American or Australian thing. Um, now, maybe, maybe they end up creating a market for it. I don't know. But it does feel... It feels kind of surreal watching it tried... Well, UK. it's a very,
2: it's a big difference between LBC and talk radio, isn't it? Because LBC is, is, I mean, their phrase, you know, a leading Britain's conversation. I think it, it is more, it is easier to listen to because it is more of a conversation. Whereas talk radio just seems to be all about, you know, howling at the moon
1: it's interesting talking to this about this obviously because you've with leveson and everything you're someone who's considered and and thought about the role of the media and, and how it should be regulated and how it how it affects our lives and also the extent that media organizations are prepared to go to some of them perhaps to to silence other people looking at the media landscape as it is now post leveson and obviously leveson too never happened but uh just in terms of the media, do you feel as if, though, the lessons have effectively been learned and that things have changed, or that there was a brief period where the public thought about it and, actually, that stuff's probably still going on?
2: Well, I i mean, I've met the McCanns, I've met the um, Christopher Jeffreys... Um, Dowlers? Yes. Um, you know, I mean, all of those people, and well, and and, and um, Charlotte Church, for that matter, uh, and it's all pretty upsetting. Um, and I'm sure all of that stuff still still happens. They're probably just a bit more careful about it legally. And interestingly, of course, everybody always thought it was just one rotten. Their argument was it was one rotten apple, mm. um, and then it turned out it was an old barrel of apples, and um, it wasn't just one person, and, and all the rest of it, and. My guess is that some newspapers got off pretty lightly. Um, Anyway, I mean, we, we, you know, suing, I only really sued um, to try and get to the truth, really. Uh, But we got 30 grand. (laughs) And um, and everybody told me, well, you know, you should give that to charity. And I'm afraid I said, bugger that for a game of soldiers. Um, So we got a new bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) The Murdoch suite. That's exactly what we call it. Um, and every time I use it, I think of him.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. And I don't
2: mean when I'm having a shower.
1: <laughs> no, I, I kind of, I I'm guess. I'm going to wash
2: that man right out of my hair.
1: <laughs> I can't remember who yeah. I was talking to this. It was another guest I was talking to recently. Just about that. There was a period where select committees were where it was at. You know, you think of Bob Diamond, uh, Uh, obviously the Murdoch one himself, and the Coulson-Brooks one. I mean, when you're on a committee facing up to people like Coulson and Brooks, the adrenaline must be like nothing else. And it's a different type of scrutiny to the House of Commons chamber. You've got more time. They can't bluff in the same way that a, a minister can at the dispatch box. It's more intense. It's more forensic. Using those questions that you get, and for maximum advantage in in an arena like that. Did you put a lot of pressure on yourself going into that exchange about what you were going to ask and and how focused you were going to be?
2: Um, Gosh, I can't remember. Um, I think I knew I wanted to ask that question and it was the last question of the session because Gerald cut me off afterwards, Gerald Kaufman. And I never quite understood why. So we had, I got on very well with Gerald. Um, and we, <laughs> the committee went, Gerald used to like taking the committee to the States every year. Um, Great. Preferably to Hollywood. Um, and I only went the once, but we went to Fox Studios and had lunch with Rupert. Um, and because Gerald and Rupert were in the Oxford Labour Club together when Rupert got thrown out for rigging the vote, <laughs> um, and um, so there was this, this strange moment when we, where we we are approaching each other down a very long path on a very hot day. Gerald and his team from the committee and Rupert and his team, um, sort of, uh, it's all very reservoir dogs kind of thing. <laughs> and then we had lunch, and we and, and uh, Murdoch kept he, he wears a lot of rings. And he kept on going at this all the time, sort of disconcerting all his team who looked terrified. And I was sitting next to um, him. Anyway, afterwards, I told a story to um, the newspapers about about all of this. And I said that um, uh, we'd had lunch in the Judy Garland room. And Gerald came up to me that evening Furious after the vote, and he said, "Christopher, you know perfectly well that we do not refer to events that have happened on tour anywhere, and certainly not to the press. And even more importantly, it's the Shirley Temple room, not the Judy Garland room."
1: So, was that was the Murdoch? Was that meeting prior to Brooks and Coulson, or after?
2: After. And but but then remember when Murdoch appeared before the select committee in whenever it was 2012 or 13 or whatever, um, with James, yeah, he only had one ring on, all the other rings have been taken off because they knew that this is a problem. And G- James keeps on holding his hand to stop him doing it.
1: What a great thing to to kind of notice! So, when you're that's what my to... diary is full of. Well, this is this is amazing. So, when you're sat next to him, this is a meticulous guy. This is a guy who will have known, he might not have previous knowledge of every MP on that committee that was coming with Gerald, but certainly in the run-up to that, he will have been briefed. He'll have made it his business, and I'm sure he'll have probably watched the Coulson-Brooks uh, Select Committee and at the time anyway. Yeah. Did, he, did, you, did he acknowledge it? Was he friendly? Did he mention that exchange at all?
2: No, and I can't really remember. I mean, it was all quite sort of eggshelly, is my memory. Um, but but I I for years and years and years. Well, I remember on one occasion, Sky used to sponsor a house at Hay at the Hay Festival, and I'd been invited by the Sky person, and then she had to ring me and say Rupert said you can't come. <laughs> um, and and then there were and, and then I there were loads of events where I if I turned up I knew I would be told no you can't come in including at party conference and things like that. So sometimes I used to go just to make the point that I wasn't allowed in,
1: you know. Did you ever manage to blag your way in?
2: Yes, <laughs> with Matthew Paris. Excellent. Um, and we got in there, and. Rebecca Brooks said to me, "Oh, Mister Bryant, it's dark. Shouldn't you be out um, cruising somewhere on the heath?" And I, I and I was just a little bit taken aback. I didn't know what to say. But her then husband, Ross Kemp, said, "Shut up, you homophobic cow!"
1: Oh my God.
2: We're going to run out of stories soon. Mr. I don't think
1: we are. I think we're going to run out of time, but I don't think we're going to run out of stories. I feel like when these, or even before... I mean, if you're happy to just come on every month and just do <laughs>
2: one
1: of... Greatest hits of some of these... incredible. I wanted to ask you about the Russians and the all-party parliament, all parliamentary group and what went on there. That they had... They effectively got rid of it. They
2: tried... Well, they, yes, they decided that... The, the, well, the Russian ambassador was very angry that I was the chair of the group because I, or well, partly because I'm gay and more importantly because I was um, a Putin critic. But he, the point he always used to make to lots of Tory MPs was it was because I was gay that it was a, an outrage. It was an insult to Mother Russia and all this. Um, and so he persuaded, he set up a group of conservative friends of Russia um, and at the embassy um, at which they decided to have me removed as chair of the all-party group for Russia. And normally at an all-party group meeting, annual meeting, you have like um, two members of the House of Lords, one member of the House of Commons and five dogs. Um, on this occasion, we had more than 250 MPs turn up because half the cabinet, including Cam- Cameron and Osborne and all sorts of others, turned up to vote for me out.
1: That's incredible, because if people don't... This isn't a select committee. This is all party parliamentary groups, as you say, which are usually poorly attended. They're kind of hobby horses. They're often... It was committee room
2: 18 as well, which is, like, it, right up in the eaves, so there's you can't fit more than 20 people in. So why is Cameron
1: getting involved?
2: I think it was Michael Howard's idea, or a guy in his office, anyway.
1: Uh, there's obviously been... Suggestions that the Russians have stuff on Donald Trump, but at the time there were suggestions that the Russians had stuff on Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, Alan Duncan, David Davis.
2: And me, no doubt. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, well, I, well um, various different organizations who, who run analytical stuff have, have sort of checked my social media for trolls and so on, and a lot of it stems straight from St. Petersburg.
1: It's a remarkable, I mean, any politician who's been in the House of Commons since 2001 will have amassed enough stories and, and experiences and will have seen stuff. It does feel like you've had a particularly, frankly, astonishing experience since become, becoming a Member of Parliament.
2: My husband says, can we, st- can we stop notching up enemies now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but the thing is with you is you seem to forgive them in kind of 20-year cycles. So they're enemies for now, but in perhaps in, in 2040 they'll be... But well, there's enemies
2: and there's enemies. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I passionately dislike everything that Rupert Murdoch stands for. I uh, loathe um, what Putin has done to Russia. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one thing the, having a, a spat with somebody is, is another. I can have a spat with a Tory MP in the chamber and be perfectly civil afterwards. You know, it's one of the things you have to decide all the time. Is if you if you are trying to achieve something, especially when you're in opposition, how hard it, do you go in? Is it better to make a fuss so that they really take notice um, and they're frightened of you, or is it better just to be um, a bit more emollient and um, you know get there by collaboration? Difficult to... balancing
1: act. Well, it is, and and often in the heat of the moment, it's easy prior or, or post to, to think about it in that rational way, sometimes in the heat of the moment, the decision-making ability isn't as sharp as it is with a, a bit of perspective.
2: Well, and one of, the stre- one of the things I hope I've got right in the book is um, I think some of the way... I, I've told some of, the, some of the events in the book, of course, are events that have been written about before. Um, uh, but because I've got new perspectives and new handwritten accounts from then... I think I'm able to tell it in a different way and also because I'm an MP I know that if you're in the chamber of the house of commons the atmosphere can turn on a sixpence and you know you you can find yourself suddenly high and dry because you're still speaking in the in the moment two minutes ago and and it's all moved on um and uh, that's kind of the worst experience of all um it's different this year because so few people are around in the chamber but um, it, it's 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 a very striking feature of it.
1: What the sense that you've misjudged the mood?
2: Well, I mean, I, I've I've seen horrible moments when um, ministers have completely lost control of the chamber, um, mm. or you know, um, uh, you know, played it completely wrong. They've they had a good argument and suddenly they've lost the chamber um, just because of a single sentence and things like that um so it, it it's a it's a very and because it most speeches aren't actually read out they are impromptu or to some degree at least yeah um it's very different from most other um chambers i think most other political you know in the senate they just read out speeches at each other
1: but that's what makes parliament so watchable so compelling and what uh, one of the, and the, the reason why by the way the, and i've mentioned this earlier this isn't the first book of yours that i've possessed your your biographies of of parliament parliament the biography was volume one and two is i love parliament as a place and just if i have a day off and people even (laughs) politicians think i'm sad when i tell them this i'll just go and sit in the public gallery and just watch a debate and i will have no no idea and it could be anything couldn't it it could be about whether to launch military action or it could be about some really obscure thing about what's happening in a particular local authority somewhere in England. But it is phenomenal watching how it moves, how it exists. And invariably I come away feeling slightly recharged about politics because most people on the whole are magnanimous with each other and people you agree with and disagree with will say things you you know, you, you see politicians that you often see on telling, how could I ever agree with anything they say? And they make a really good diplomatic point which is barely ever shown but that love of the place i mean you must feel a a love of parliament as a not just the house of commons as an arena but i get the sense i mean the fact you've written two biographies about it you must feel an affinity for for the magic of the place
2: yeah i'm not a. am not actually a big fan of the chamber itself um uh It it is difficult to project in for most voices. Um, And the lighting is really poor. And sitting like that...
1: that I mean, the lighting, the only thing that strikes me when I'm there is that it's just, it's very bright.
2: It's not, it's really dark.
1: Oh, really? It feels, maybe when you're on the public gallery or at the kind of light level, it feels kind of overly lit, but it's too dark. It feels
2: feels dark, yeah. Um, And the wood adds to it and stuff. Um, it, it's quite often very difficult to hear anything. Mm. Um, the acoustic is pretty poor in there. Um, and often you're sitting sideways on, which you'd say you end up with a really bad back by the end of the day. Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of the chamber itself. Um, however, you know, it is the cockpit of British democracy and I love all of that. My favorite bit by, by a, a, a long jork um, is Westminster Hall, which is, of course, the oldest bit. And my second favourite bit is the Cloisters, which nobody ever gets to see, yeah. um, and would have been virtually ruined by nine, uh, 20th century meddling with them, but um, are going to be, I hope, are going to be done up. And, uh, and I hope, well, I'd like to see them more publicly accessible as well.
1: And are they the ones where you've got the Conservative Research Department and the PLP?
2: Used to. They, they, yeah, they yeah. moved out... Um, two years ago so as to get the work done but nothing's happened since
1: when um but the the party the plp side of it which is where charles the signed cromwell's death warrant was the wasn't that debatable. where? They, well come on the, the, the story's good the story's good is it, it does your research tell you otherwise
2: I've, I've yet to find any evidence that that's where it happens it is it is I think it was not that Cromwell's office. It was Thomas Cromwell's office.
1: Oh, right. Henry VIII. Yeah. Oh. Because it was built under
2: Henry VII.
1: Oh, but when I, were, when I was a member of party staff, whenever we went into the PLP bit, people were like, oh, that's where Cromwell's death warrant was signed.
2: Yeah, I know. But I'm not so sure. It, I mean, it might be true. Oh, yeah.
1: what? But I'm the am you know, I mean, people
2: there. But well, as you know from my history of Parliament, there are lots of things which are myths and are untrue about Parliament. It's not two <coughs> swords' length lengths apart, and all of that.
1: Yes, that's very true. But but that. But again, this is kind of like saying Santa isn't real, isn't it? Like these are.
2: It really isn't.
1: <laughs> it really
2: isn't. It is for me. It's, it's not even like saying Trump has won.
1: <laughs> Chris, I've kept you for far longer than I promised I would. So. Thank you so much. It would be great to get you back on. When the diaries are out, the Glamour Boys.
2: <laughs>
1: Do you th- but, I mean, what people now are going to be so tantalised by wanting to have a peek at your diaries. Do you have an, any idea when you think you might potentially publish them?
2: When nobody can find me. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Okay. Not, so not we, for a while. Not for wait, a while. I can't see, you know... Um. I can't see them being published before I have at least announced that I'm leaving Parliament. <laughs>
1: well, that may be a very long time, given that you uh, represent the safe seat. Chris, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. No, thanks, Matt. Oh, my God. I felt like I'd stepped out of the cinema after I'd finished speaking to Chris. And there's just there's so many more things we you go, I, I want to ask you more about this, that and the other. Which I know I always say with every guest. And it is always true. So I probably need to stop saying it. But oh my word. What a life. And I th- you know I don't think we've even got 1% of of what Chris has seen and experienced and done. Um, and he's di- I would love to read those diaries of his. And you think I'll oh, just publish them now. We've all got to wait God knows how long. 10, 15, 20 years to read them. <laughs> I love that the first entry in it is "I'm feeling depressed" or "I feel depressed tonight." What a great way for a new MP to start a diary. But my word, what an interview that was! What a guy! Um, and you can buy the book now, The Glamour Boys. I put a link in the blurb um, to the uh, where you can buy the book from Bloomsbury, and of course, other political books are available, including Politically Homeless. And um, just thank you for all your messages about it. People still getting in touch uh, who thankfully have really enjoyed it which is very kind of them um and you can email the show don't forget political party podcast at gmail.com have a great weekend i'll see you next week ra